Okay, the story begins, friends. Welcome. Exploring the Siddur, understanding the Siddur. We are in the Blue Chabad Siddur, page five. Nitilat Yadayim, washing the hands. Okay. Hopefully by the end of today's discussion, we will see how there is so much more to hand washing um, than we ever thought. There is so much more to blessings than we ever thought. Because as we said earlier, everything in the sitter is a some sort of tool for meditation to help us better be conscious of our relationship with God. And the blessing on the hand washing and blessings in general are no different. We're going to split this discussion into two, two parts of this discussion. Because if you look at the blessing, it's the middle of the page, the first blessing on the page. The blessing is pretty much similar to all other blessings that we recite on mitzvahs, with the exception of the last couple of words concerning the washing of the hands. If it were a different mitzvah, it would be concerning whatever that mitzvah might be, the shaking of the lulav or, or whatever it is, right? So let's, we're gonna understand two things today. Um, if we need to split it into two lessons, we'll do that depending on how long it takes. But number one, let's understand the first half of a blessing, of the blessing. This meditation is gonna be applicable to any blessing you recite on any mitzvah. And then number two, which we'll do either today or next week, depending on how much time we're permitted, we will explore the inner dimension of what hand washing represents, what it represents on a very literal level, what it represents on a more esoteric and perhaps psychological level. Okay, you're with me? Let's read the prayer in English and then we'll... Uh, will uncover its layers. So it's page five, middle of the page. I'll just read it quickly in the English. We say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us Concerning the washing of the hands on the tilat Okay, so let's take a step back first. Let's first understand the historical context of blessings. Who authored blessings? Right, the Torah, for example, the text of the Torah, the weekly parsha, was authored by Moses. Moses literally wrote it down, but it came from God. We have the books of the prophets, authored by the prophets. We have the Talmud, which is the understanding of the sages. Where do blessings fall in? Historically and um, in terms of, of how, what level of sacredity, if that's a word, they represent. Well, the Kohanim in the temple. Okay, okay you're, you're, historically you're close. You're definitely close. Uh, the Kohanim were obligated to give the, right, the priestly blessing. Yeah. But when we have the when when we have the the text of the blessings that we have throughout the Siddur, Baruch Hashem, right? Who authored this text? So this the blessings were authored and penned by a rabbi named Ezra. It wasn't just him; it was his entire rabbinical court. Raise your hand if you've heard of Ezra. If you're familiar with Ezra, Ezra the scribe, Ezra HaSofer. Okay, Ezra was. Um, towards the end of the biblical age, towards the end of the age of the prophets, Ezra was a was a unique Jewish leader. He, he lived in a very unique time because he lived during the destruction of the the end of the destruction of Temple Number One, and was instrumental in the construction of Temple Number Two. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And many of the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the Babylonian exile. The truth is Jews went all over the world. Jews went to Yemen, Jews went to Spain, Jews went 
uh, to other places as well. I believe the Jews went to uh, Persia at the time, Iran. But a big chunk of Jews went to Babylon. And that exile lasted 70 years. This is around the time of the story of Purim, when the story of Purim took place. And Ezra finally brought most of the Jews back to Jerusalem and was instrumental in rebuilding temple number two. John, what's up? Well, when we say Babylonian exile or Roman exile, are we referring to the people who exiled us or to where we mostly went? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> the, uh, or at least in this context, the, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the first temple, the Beit HaMikdash, that was Nebuchadnezzar. And the Jews were, for the most part, exiled to Babylon. So they went to the place of their conquerors. Of, of their conquerors, yeah. That was basically, they were basically kicked out of their own land. Um, it was during this time period, after the destruction of the temple, that Ezra, through uh, divine inspiration, felt that in order to be more conscious of our relationship with God, we're going to actually need a text of blessings, a very unique text to formulate our communication with God. That's when he authored the Amida prayer and most of the other blessings that we recite before mitzvahs and food as well. Let's take a look at the text. Let's uncover it. Let's unmask it over here. On a very literal level, when we say Baruch Ata Hashem, blessed are you, Lord, blessed are you, God. On a very literal level, what does that mean? Um, we say, blessed are you, God. Some commentaries explain that to mean that, God, you are the source of blessing. Actually, take a look at the Hebrew word Baruch. If you have your sitter with you, look at the word Baruch. Commentaries explain Baruch as an acronym. There's four letters in the word Baruch. Bet, Reish, Vav, Chaf. And if you rearrange the order, it stands for Rosh Umakor, the head and source, Kol Brachot, of all blessings. God is the Rosh Umakor, the head and source of all blessings. He is the source of blessing. But there's a deeper level here. There's a deeper understanding of what Baruch means. Baruch has another meaning. Baruch literally means blessed. You are blessed, God. But the Shalah HaKadosh explains that the word Baruch means to, to draw down, to, to um, trying to think of the right word here. To open When you open up a channel and you allow something to flow down to you, that's called Baruch. When you, what's it called when you take a tree? Um, there's a word for it. I'm thinking the word. When you take a branch of a tree and you stick it in the ground to allow it to grow into the tree. Sorry, into the, that's not grafting, that's something else. I think you splice it. Is that what the word is? What's, what's, no, I don't you know. know, what I'm know. About? You, you take the edge of the branch, you like kind of dip it into the earth. Propagating. What's it, what's it called? Propagating. Propagating? Okay, maybe propagating. In Hebrew, the word is mavrich, to bring down. You take that branch and you're allowing it to come down into the earth. Baruch means to draw down. So when we say baruch, we're actually trying to draw something down into our own lives, into our own consciousness. And what are we trying to draw into our own consciousness? We're trying to draw God into our own consciousness. But look, this is fascinating. You're going to love this. How do we refer to God? In the blessing, we refer to God as you. How unformal. Think about this. God is the king of all kings. And we simply refer to him as you. When I was in school, we were taught that we don't say to the teacher, you said, say the teacher said, right? The rabbi said, or whoever it was, because we were talking to somebody, uh, you know, older and somebody that we were supposed to have respected. So we wouldn't refer to them as you, right? 
a a mortal king would never be referred to as you even in in a court how do they refer to the judge they don't say you they say your honor right a king you would say your majesty if you're being formal and appropriate so when it comes to the king of all kings why do we refer to him so in, informally blessed are you This reveals incredible insight in the type of relationship God is looking to have with us. Blessed, Baruch, means to draw down you. We want to connect to you, God. Forget the formality. God want, is willing to forego the formality of his majesty, of his, of his majesty, of his majesticness. What's the word here? God is willing to forego that um, drama, if you will, the theatrics of, uh, of being a king. And he just wants us to connect to him on a very simple level. He wants the relationship to be simple, the relationship to be deep. He wants the relationship to be Baruch, to be drawn into our consciousness, and he wants it to be him. Right afterwards, we say, Lord, our God. Once we've been open to drawing God's God himself, you, right? You know, there, there's, there's very few, only people, you're, you only refer to people without a name when you're, when you're really close to them. You know, a coworker or somebody at the office, you'll, hey, George, or hey, whatever. But somebody, if you're really close to a spouse, you'll often just talk to them. You're not going to say their name. Uh, you, you, you don't refer to yourself by name. You're very close to yourself, right? So we refer to God simply as you because he's right there. He wants that relationship. And we say, Lord, you're our God, Elokeinu. The suffix nu means ours. You're king of the universe. And this is amazing. God, you are king of the universe. You're king of the entire world. Yet, you're our God because we connect directly to you and we're Baruch, we draw that into our consciousness. This is such an important meditation to have when saying a blessing. Now, disclaimer, time doesn't have, time does not permit to, on a daily basis or on a regular basis, go through every single meditation we're going to learn every single day, every single time you recite a blessing. Otherwise, every time you want to wash your hands, you're going to, be, you're going to go through this whole meditation. You're going to, you're, who has the time for that? Right? I had a friend who was very into davening. He used to say, I didn't have time to daven today, so I'm just going to say the words. <laughs> um, but there, we, we can allocate time to think about this message. It doesn't have to be all the time. But try it. Try it one morning. Or anytime you recite a blessing, think about this. God is king of the universe. And for some reason, he wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to address him directly. Baruch Atta, and he wants you, you. He wants to become part of your consciousness, to be Baruch, to be drawn into you. Take a look at the next part of the, before we move on to the next part of the blessing. Any questions, thoughts, comments? We're all on the boat, we're all in the ark. We're all here, right? Quick, quick question. Yeah. Um, so when we, I, I'm always confused about blessing. 
I mean, how can we as humans bless bless God? We don't have any power to bless God. We, God could bless us, it seems like, but how can humans, we can give a human blessing, but it's so much less. Okay, it's a good question. That's a good question. Why, why does God need our blessings? Very good question. And if God needs our blessings, why would we want to serve such a God? <laughs> you know, that Grouch to Marx used to say, why would I want to be part of a club that wants me as a member? <laughs> if God needs my blessings, then I don't really need to serve him. And if I, if he doesn't need my blessings, then I shouldn't be blessing him. So both of the explanations on what Baruch means and what blessed means um, address that. The simple explanation, Baruch, you are blessed. You are the source of blessing. We're addressing God as the source of, of all blessing, the source of all goodness, the source of all positivity. But the other explanation of blessed, of Baruch, means literally simply just to draw down. Blessed are you. It's a translation. Translations are dangerous because they don't get the full picture. Another way to translate it would be you are drawn down. We are drawing you down. In other words, the blessing of Baruch to Hashem is actually describing what we're trying to achieve in this relationship, which is Baruch to Hashem drawing you, Hashem, down into our consciousness. And even though you are the king of the world, you chose to be our own personal God. You are Elokeinu. You are our God. Does that make sense? But yes. I want to ask you something. Why Why do we all have to say it in the same words? Is it just because somebody wise wrote it and it's beautiful and, and, and it makes sense and it's been thought through? Excellent question. Excellent question. Why, why can't I just communicate to God on my own level in my own way? Yeah. And the, the answer is, first of all, you, you should communicate to God on your own level, in your own way. Um, all of these prayers are important, but they don't preclude communicating to God in your own language. Um, and that definitely is an important thing to do and to allocate time for. But the, the, the value of having an established text, there, there, there's certainly value, you know, wise people with prophetic uh, vision and inspiration understood that the frame that there is value to having a framework there's going to be times when you're uninspired there's going to be times when we're not necessarily as soul conscious as we want to be as interested as we want to be and getting it together to pour our how our heart out without a framework is not always practical on a on a on a regular basis um so the 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 idea of having an established text which serves as a template to meditate on um definitely is, is helpful uh, that, that's besides the kabbalistic significance of, of of each word and of each um sentence and phrase does it make sense yeah, it's like a reminder, and it's and it, it includes all the details. So you, if you get something to think about while you're doing it, exactly, it's a, it's a it's a framework. Yeah. It's a path. It's a path. A it's a very good question, though. A very important question. I have a question. Yeah. I kind of remember hearing that. So, so, sorry to interrupt. Can I just ask you to be a little bit louder? We're having. Uh, at least on my end, I'm having trouble hearing. I I remember hearing or learning that uh, uh, what you're saying, it, where it's coming from, is 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 real. That Hashem serves a many language, a many framework, a many context. That's that's that wants more to be real than just repeating something that is written. Um, it, I, I'm not 100% sure if I heard your question correctly, but if I if I did hear your question correctly, but I um, th there's there's two things. There is the actual 
template of the text, and then there's the language that it's in. Right? Prayer could be done in any language. Um, you could do it in the Hebrew, you could do it in the English, but there is value to using the template that's been established because it's that guided meditation. It's that set meditation. Uh, there's a very specific point that the sitter's trying to lead us to. And reciting that same text every day, if we're mindful enough, can actually drill, drill in the point. There's a teaching from Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liyad, the author of the Tanya. He points out that the, if you look in the text of the Torah, the Dalit in the verse of the Shema is larger than all of the other letters of the Torah. All the letters of the Torah are pretty much uniform. There's a uniform font. There's a uniform size of the font, right? Times New Roman 12. No, I'm kidding. The, um, the Dalit of the Shema is larger. And he points out that the, it's a cute insight, but the Shema, the, the Dalit is a hammer shape. And it's larger because we were reciting the same prayer every day. We're trying to hammer in a message. We're trying to drill in a certain level of consciousness, a certain perspective. That makes sense? Let, let's take a look at the next part of the blessing. Unless anybody has more questions, we're open to we're open to questions. Um, take a look at the next part of the blessings. We say Asher Kidshanu in English. It's who has sanctified us, right? This, this meditation that we are going through right now is applicable to all blessings because they they all start off the same. Blessed you are, Lord, our God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us. What does that mean that God sanctified us? On a very literal level, he sanctified us with his commandments, by the way. On a literal level, when you do a mitzvah, you become holy. God gives us the opportunity to be holy. Okay. But there's a deeper meaning here. What does holy mean? What does sacred mean? Um, define sacred. One way to define sacred is divine intrinsic value. But there's another definition of the word sacred, sacred, kedusha, kadosh, holy, or sanctified. These are all the same word, right? Comes to the word. We, we have many variations of this word. We have kaddish, we have kedusha, we have kiddush. In the context of this blessing, it's kedusha, new. It's all the same word. We are sanctified. We are holy. What does that mean? The word kedusha connotes the concept of dedication or separation. When a groom betroths a bride under the wedding canopy, in Hebrew we call that kedushin, same word. He made her sacred. He made her separate. She is dedicated to no one other than him in this relationship. The relationship is non-monogamous, right? When we do a mitzvah, God is essentially giving us a ring, giving us an item in which he is betrothing us making the relationship non-monogamous, making the relationship that we are separated from the whole world and we are dedicated to him. It's like a marriage. Uh, King Solomon, in his book, Song of Songs, describes the Jewish people's relationship with God as a marriage. And God giving us mitzvahs is like that wedding ring. And when we do that mitzvah, we are embracing the relationship. And that's why we say he sanctified us. Again, translations are limited, but another way to translate it is actually he betrothed us. When we do a mitzvah, God is betrothing us. We're becoming holy. We're becoming dedicated. We're becoming unique to only him. So now he truly is our God, a personal God, a personal God that we could connect to on a no-name basis. That's why going back to the beginning of the blessing, we say, blessed are you. 
referring to God uh, directly. In any other, uh, to any other king, this would be disrespectful, but to God, it's intimate. And God appreciates intimacy. God wants intimacy. Which leads us to the next part of the blessing. You're going to note if you note if you look at the text of the blessing you analyze here, you'll notice a contradiction or a discrepancy. The beginning of the blessing, we refer to God directly, blessed in, in the first person. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us. And then all of a sudden we switch to third person who has sanctified us with his commandments. It should say with your commandments. Right? You see, you see the discrepancy here? There, there, this doesn't seem to be grammatically correct. What it reads is, blessed are you, first person, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments. What it should have said is with your commandments. You are blessed. You sanctified us with your commandments. Instead, it says you are blessed and sanctified us with his commandments. It, it would be like saying, it, it would be like saying, um, I don't I, I, I'm trying to think of an example. I would, it would be like saying, David, you just turned on your screen and his lighting is very good. No, I would say your lighting is very good. I'm still talking to you, right? I should, I should use uniformity. So that's exactly what we're doing in this blessing here. There seems to be a discrepancy. And the commentaries point out a fascinating reason why. There's a lesson here. Think about it for a second. There's a powerful lesson here. In the 12th and 13th century, there was a Jewish biblical or, or midrashic commentator, and he was a poet. He was a philosopher. He was a poet. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Hapnini. He wrote a book called Bechinat Olam. And he has a famous line. Translating it into English, so I don't know if it's going to sound as good, but we'll try anyways. The ultimate knowledge of you, God, is that we don't know you. You heard that line before? He's also famous for saying, if I knew you, I would be you. The ultimate knowledge of you, God, is that I don't know you. God is not a human. Humans are confined to the limitations of intellect, right? Our, our intellect has limitations to it. There's only so much we can know. But God is the creator of intellect. Being that he's the creator of intellect, he's not confined to it. So our mind can't truly wrap itself around God. Or as the Zohar says, no thought can grasp him. So that's why the blessing starts off as blessed are you, Lord, as if we know him on a you basis, on a first person basis. But then the blessing switches and says he sanctified us with his commandments. As much as we feel that we know God, we truly don't fully encapsulate him with our own mind. If we did, that wouldn't be a God we wanted to serve. Let me, let me word it this way. Let me put it this way. What percentage of your mind should be occupied theoretically? What percentage of your mind should be occupied with God? 100%. What percentage of God can your mind occupy? Zero. Right? So the first part of the blessing talks about our experience of God. We refer to him as a you, as if we really know him. The second part of the blessing where it switches to third person talks about not our experience of God, but the reality. The reality is our, our, our knowledge of him is limited. So how could we truly know God then? If he's truly beyond us, how can we baruch, how could we draw him in 
to our consciousness if our consciousness can never totally understand him. That's through him sanctifying us with his commandments. That's where a mitzvah comes. Let me word it this way. The Zohar says, no thought can grasp him. Zalman of Liadi in, in his in the Tanya comments, chapter four of Tanya, as well as other places, no thought can grasp him, which means you can grasp him. You can grasp God. You can get him. It's not going to be through thought. It's not going to be with the mind. It's going to be with the soul. It's not going to be consciously. It's going to be subconsciously. And that's where a mitzvah comes in. A mitzvah reveals that soul connection that we have with God. Okay, so we have... Uh-oh, are we frozen? No, we're not frozen. Okay. <laughs> we have this newfound understanding of this blessing. Let's go to the top of the blessing and plug in everything we just read. We'll read we started the uh, discussion about 20 minutes ago with um, reading the blessing. We gave new insight, new depth. Let's read the blessing again. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. What that means, blessed, Baruch, means we are drawing. The word Baruch also means not only blessed, but also means to draw down. We are drawing you into our consciousness. And even though you're the king of the universe, you have a lot on your hands, tight ship, you, you run a tight ship, you are our God, our own personal God. You've sanctified us. You've betrothed us with your mitzvahs. And although we refer to you on a direct, uh, in the first person as you, you sanctified us with his commandments. The reality is, the, 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 um, if we're honest with ourselves, there's more room for growth in this relationship. It's third person. Because our mind cannot fully encapsulate God. It has to be with our actions, with our soul. Okay, that's part one of our discussion. Um, and this is applicable, this meditation is applicable and important for any mitzvah, any blessing we recite for a mitzvah. Um, any questions, thoughts, comments before we move on? Okay. Let's discuss Nitilat Yadayim, the specific mitzvah of washing the hands, right? Again, the above meditation is the, is the prelude to any mitzvah. We say concerning the washing of the hands on Nitilat Yadayim. Let's first start off with the why. Why do we wash our hands in the morning? Um, cleanliness is a big part of it, but there's the commentaries point out three reasons why we have a mitzvah, a commandment to wash our hands in the morning. Reason number one, our hands are busy. Halachically, you're not permitted to recite words of kedusha, of holiness, with dirty hands, right? And if you touch any part of your body that is normally covered, hands are considered soiled, their hands are considered dirty. Judaism is very particular with uh, hygiene and very strict with hygiene. And um, when we sleep, our hands are presumed to have gone in places that are not necessarily clean. Our hands move around when we sleep. If our, so we wake up in the morning, we want to pray. You can't, your hands are dirty, right? By the way, most mitzvahs, on most mitzvahs, the blessing is recited prior to the mitzvah. You say the blessing of the tefillin before putting on the tefillin. You say the blessing of the lulav before shaking the lulav. You say the blessing of the matzah before eating it. There's a couple of exceptions of when the blessing is recited after the mitzvah, and one of which are the blessings of the hand washing. And the reason is because your hands are dirty. You can't recite the blessing. You're forced to have to say it afterwards. Okay, so that's reason number one. Reason number two, why do we wash our hands in the morning? We go to sleep, our soul or portion of our soul departs at night, which means part of ourselves are void. A part of ourselves are void of soul. 
allowing room for negativity to manifest itself within us. So our soul comes back, we wake up in the morning and negativity, klipa, negative energy has manifested in our hands. So we purify our hands with water. Water is considered to be a means of purification. Right, where do we see this in the Torah? Two Torah portion, a couple of weeks ago, Abraham invites the Arabs into his tent, not realizing they were angels. And he says, why don't you wash your hands and feet? Why don't you purify your hands and feet before coming in? Okay. Because our hands are considered to be ritually impure, the first reason is because they're hygienically dirty. It's just, their hands are dirty. Wash your hands. The second reason is because our hands are um, spiritually impure. It's spiritual dirt. And therefore, before washing our hands, we're not really supposed to touch food. We're not really supposed to touch, we're not really supposed to touch things if you can avoid it. Okay. Reason number three is before you serve in the temple, the Kohen, the priests would wash their hands. They would sanctify their hands. Well, guess what? When we wake up in the morning, we are like that Cohen. We are ready to serve. We are ready to dedicate ourselves to our mission, to our purpose. And to reflect that, we wash our hands. Those are the three reasons. By the way, just a, a, a side point. We call it netilat yadayim. What does netilat yadayim mean? The word netilat doesn't mean washing uh, in a literal sense. The word for washing cleansing. in Hebrew is... Why? Does it mean cleansing? It, it, it doesn't mean cleansing either. Um, it's translated as that in the English. Translations are a little dangerous. It doesn't mean cleansing either. The word netila literally means to take. Taking of the hands. Um, the blessing of the lulav, we say the same expression, netilat lulav, the taking of the lulav. And the commentaries point out several reasons why we refer to it as netilat. And it, this sounds technical, but you'll soon see why this is very meaningful, hopefully in the next 15 minutes. So number one, netilat, the way you say uh, netilat refers to the vessel itself, a a hand-washing vessel is referred to as a netel. And this is a reminder that in order to wash our hands properly, we need to use a netel. We need to use a cup. And you have to actually use a cup. You can't just use running water. But there's another reason. And this is, this is an important, uh, a very significant reason. You'll soon see why. The word netila can also mean to lift, the lifting of the hands. the blessing and you'll soon see why this is so important and why that's referred to as netila but let's first understand the inner dynamic of what hand washing represents there's a deeper significance here you know what hands represent in uh, Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah anybody know hands represent emotions Right? The right hand represents kindness. The left hand represents discipline, the emotion of love, the emotion of fear. Um, if you have your sitter with you, please open up to page 150. 150. There is a prayer that's recited Fridays before Shabbos. And it's a, it's a very interesting prayer. It's, it talks about the Kabbalistic spiritual geography of, of, of godliness. It talks about the spiritual garments of God, what we refer to as the spherot of God, the quote-unquote personality of God, although you know we use these terms anthropomorphically, not literally. And here's what we read. Um, 
Take a look on 150, the third line. I'm going to quickly read it in English. Right by the period. God is talking, not God, the, the, the Kabbalistic teachings, the quote, this is a quote, this is a direct quote, by the way, from the Zohar, one of the earliest works on Kabbalah. And it discusses the soul structure, the personality structure of the spiritual heavens. And it says, you have made for them, for the spiritual spherot, the various personalities, a number of bodies, which are called bodies in comparison with the garments, which cover them. And they are described anthropomorphically in the following manner. Chesed, kindness, God's kindness, represents the right arm. Gavura, severity or power, represents the left arm. Tiferet, beauty, represents the torso. Netzach, eternity or victory. And Hod, splendor, represents the thighs. Yesod, which is the foundation, represents the torso, etc. So the various divine emotive traits, God's emotional traits, represents different parts of the body. Chesed and Gavura, kindness and severity, represents the hands. Right? You can go back to the page five if you want. And emotions have a tendency to... if not guided properly to lose their purity, right? We talk about, we talk, spoke about this in the Tanya quite a bit. Emotions are like an engine, right? Um, take a look at this week's Torah portion. We have Asaph and we have Jacob, two brothers and the twins. Isaac invests a great deal into Asaph. And at first glance, it seems like Isaac is blinded, literally and figuratively, doesn't realize that Esau is not the good Jewish boy chick that he thinks he is. But on a deeper level, he realized the energy of Esau and hoped to redirect it. He was ahead of his times. But emotions itself are like an engine, right? It's like the animal soul. It's an animal, has a ton of energy, and somehow it has to be directed properly. Because if it's not directed properly, its default is, let me go towards what is most pleasurable, which isn't always a good thing, unless you're a tzaddik. But for us regular folk, um, our default of what is just most pleasurable is not necessarily a good thing. So we have to fix our emotions. We have to temper our emotions. We have to temper our animal so we have to train it. How do we do that? How do we train the animal soul? How do we train our emotions? How do we temper it? We do that with intellect. And that's what water represents. Water represents Chachma. What does Chachma mean in the context of, as we discussed in Tanya in the past, what is Chachma? Chachma is literally translated as wisdom. But Chachma represents something much deeper than just wisdom. Chachma, as we said, represents Bittal. I'm open. I'm open to something bigger than myself, not just what I feel and what I understand. Chachma is a very profound openness to God, openness to the soul, openness to, to sacred mitzvahs. And that's representative of water. In general, water represents Chachma. Chachma is calm. A wise person is calm as opposed to an emotional person. And that's what water represents. Pouring water on the hands means tempering emotions with intellect, tempering emotions with chachma, tempering emotions with openness, with bittal, with wisdom. I'll tell you a great story. I have a couple of stories here. Before we get to the story, look in the context of Tanya. We learned in chapter nine of the Tanya that the... Um, the divine soul is housed primarily in the, in the mind, the animal soul primarily in the heart. So there's this battle between mind and heart, between what is right and what is comfortable and pleasurable. There's this face-off between the two. And the default, when, especially when we wake up in the morning, especially if we didn't have our coffee yet, or if we woke up on the wrong side of the bed, the default is what is pleasurable. What does my animal soul want? The default is the hands. 
are impure. The emotions have been hijacked by the impurity, by the klipa. The only solution is to pour water on them, to give them a little bit of wisdom, to give them a little bit of bittle, to temper them with something deeper, with something more meaningful. About 150 years ago, Rabbi Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch, who was the one of the Rebbes of, of the Lubavitch movement, Chabad, was going through some difficulties. Um, he had he had various somatic symptoms in his hands apparently, and he booked a meeting with Sigmund Freud, Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe of Lubavitch at the time, 150 years ago, had a meeting with Sigmund Freud, father of psychology. Sigmund Freud was a was a Jewish boy chick. Um, there's a lot of different theories of what of why he went to this meeting, what happened with this meeting, what transpired, what was the motivation. But we do know one thing, one particular conversation they had. The Rebbe was discussing Hasidic teaching, the perspective of the Tanya and other works, the perspective of the sole focus of Judaism. Sole focus, I mean S-O-U-L of Judaism. And the Rebbe told him that a underlying principle in the Hasidic teaching is bridging the gap between intellect and emotions, between do, you know the doing what's what makes sense and what we know to be right, what is wise, doing what is comfortable and pleasurable. They're at odds with one another, and we need to bridge the gap. So what is wise actually inspires our heart. Or let me put it this way. We want our mind to guide the heart. We don't want our mind to justify the heart. Our mind justifying the heart means we have an emotional impulse and we try to make it right. Explain why it's right. What we should do is understand that there's a certain truth to the world as laid out by God in his Torah. And that guides our emotions and hopefully our, our uh, emotions will, will help carry that out and make that a, an important value for us. And that requires bridging the gap between intellect and emotions. That's what the opening is all about. And, and that's what Hasidic teaching is all about. And Freud was just floored. He said, what? Intellect and emotions bridging the gap? They're two different worlds. How can you do that? And he said, it takes a little bit of learning Hasidic teachings to understand ovening and, and getting involved to understand how to do that, but it can be done. He pointed out that apparently Hasidim, he said, it's for this reason, have an affinity towards psychology, which is very interesting, very interesting statement. That's story number one. Story number two. Uh, story number two, you've heard from me, but I'll repeat it real quickly. In the, the, the Alter Rebbe, uh, the author of Tanya had a student, a follower of Moshe Meisel. In, in the days of the Alter Rebbe, Russia and France were at odds with each other. And there was a big debate amongst the Jewish community, should we support France or should we support Russia? Many of the Jews sided with France because France didn't want to kill us. They just wanted to assimilate us. Rabbi Shneur Zalman chose Russia. He said, Russians want to kill us at the time, the czars, Russia, but at least they won't assimilate us, right? His values were a little bit different. Um, Rav Moshe Meisel's student of the Alter Rebbe was an expert in languages and knew French, could speak French without a Russian accent. I could barely understand French in a French accent, but he was able to do French without a Russian accent. And um, he became a spy, a Russian spy or he was a spy, he, and he would, he, he joined the, the, the Russian army and he would spy on, oh, um, in, in, in France. So he had a lot of inside information that he would share with Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liad, since he was part of the military and, and the spy squad. Um, Napoleon, 
who, by the way, was directly pursuing, wanted to kill the Alter Rebbe because of his uh, lack of support. Napoleon once walked into a room where Reb Moshe Meisel's the spy was. He suspected that he was a spy and he did the human lie detector test. You know the human lie detector test? Um, and exactly, hand on the heart. He walked in, he went up to the Moshe and he said, I think you are a Russian spy. And he put his hand on his heart. He didn't notice an irregular heartbeat. He said, just kidding, never mind. Napoleon walks away. Moshe Meisel said it was the ABCs, the alphabet of Hasidic teaching that saved my life. The mind being able to control the heart, the mind being able to guide the heart rather than justifying it. Um, th this, this may sound lofty, but it's very practical. How often are we emotionally charged, but then when we think about it, we're calmed down, we're okay. Right. For, for example, uh, um, imagine I told you good news, but you interpreted it as bad news, right? There was a miscommunication, broken telephone, and you understood it as bad news. How would you feel once hearing that news? I feel bad. You feel anxious, you feel scared, or whatever emotion or frustration, whatever emotion it may trigger. But as soon as you find out that it's good news, your mind tells you, hey, heart, stop it. It's going to be okay, right? Our mind rules the heart, and it's very natural. It's very normal. But it does take being intentional. And the hand washing is where we physically demonstrate this. Because the hands represent the emotion, as dictated in Kabbalah. The water is the wisdom, is the bitzel, is the intellect. And pouring the, hand, the water on the hands means purifying the emotions, inspiring them, and guiding them with intellect. This is why we, we, we lift our hands, and we call it netila, lifting. Because we have to elevate the emotions to something higher, to something deeper. This is also why we do it three times alternately. When you do something three times, it becomes halachically official. And we demonstrate this on a daily basis, every single morning. As soon as we wake up in the morning, we say, Moda'ani. We say, I concede that God is true, that this is my life. But then we take it to the next level and we demonstrate it. We say, I'm going to allow my, this makes sense to me in my mind. I'm going to turn this into a value by purifying my heart so that my mind guides my heart, doesn't just justify it. Or in Tanya lingo, my animal soul is tempered by the divine soul rather than being concealed by it. Or in contemporary simple lingo, I'm inspired to do what's right rather than just making what I feel inspired to do right. That's my story. I'm sticking to it.